Once again, we have this privilege of coming together and opening God's Word. Uh, I'm going to take it and read this section out of Matthew chapter 16, and then we will pray and dig into this together. Listen as I read God's Word. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 15 through verse 20. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we spend some time this evening really looking to unpack and unfold uh, some of the central things in this particular verse and really understand what your scripture says with regard to the foundation and authority of the church. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand uh, how important these things are uh, to rightly understanding how local churches are to function. And further also, Lord, that you would help us to uh, see and learn through it uh, the care and thoroughness with which we must approach the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things before we even get too far into the notes, we began to look last week at, uh, uh, and we asked the question last week, what is the church? And then as we began to look at the way that the Bible itself uses the term ecclesia, you realized the question itself is wrong. There is not just one singular definition for ecclesia. So uh, to simply say, what is the church? You gotta have to go further and clarify your question. Are you asking, what is the local church? Or are you asking, what is the universal church? What is your real question? Because we also saw that word was used even for just an assembly of a people in a mob. So any gathered group of people could rightly in the Greek be called an ecclesia. Look, there's a, a gathered group of people over there. It's an ecclesia. But we would not call that gathered group a church if they're gathered together to exchange fantasy football information or, or whatever the case may be. They're an ecclesia, an assembly, a gathered group of people, but they're not a church. And so there is a difference between the an ecclesia and the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. Okay? So what gathers them is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then we have local ecclesias, which 
uh, I think the simplest way to kind of begin to unpack this, we'll look at it again in the weeks to come. When you're in John chapter 10, Jesus is giving that explanation how he is the good shepherd. Indeed, as we move on further, the scriptures will end up uh, referring to him as the great shepherd, as the chief shepherd. Whereas the other term that we often use in English, the word term pastor, as it's translated in the King James, is simply the Greek word for shepherd. And so you have the chief shepherd, and then you have his under shepherds. Okay? And there is one chief shepherd over the church universal, and that is Christ. And each local church, local expression, also still has one chief shepherd. Let me modernize the language chief shepherd and translate it into modern English. There's one senior pastor. There's one lead pastor in every church, and that is to be Jesus Christ. Okay, so that, that ought to humbly put everyone else in a different position. It, it, the ter- use of the term elder or overseer so commonly in the New Testament ought not surprise us, because even when you go back, how did Moses organize the people that he led out and that he interacted with in the wilderness? Moses was kind of the chief guy, and then he had elders of all the tribes. Right? He was on top, and you had the elders of all the tribes. When he was getting ready to die, he was told, you are going to die. You need to put Joshua into your place to lead the people. And Joshua would then be in place, and under him would be the elders of the people. In the same way, Joshua happens to be, when you move forward into Greek, the very name Jesus. It's the very same name. He remains the head, and you have the elders who then practically oversee and interact with the people. But they are not the end all. They answer to and must must submit to and serve Him. And so it should be clear that what they're, how they're leading the people, how they're teaching the people, that all of it is in accord with Christ. If not, then you have to begin to ask yourself, what's going on here? Is this a true local church of Jesus Christ, or has it become a community of people with a human leader? And everyone's eyes are fixed on him, and everyone is elevating him. Um, And that can even happen in circumstances where it's not intended to, just because of God uniquely and, and wonderfully gifting an individual for service in his local church. He can attain some degree of celebrity, and God help that individual. People begin to think whatever he says is right. That is only true, first and foremost, of Christ, whatever he says is right. And with regard to all truth and doctrine, it is secondarily true of the apostles. Beyond that, it is only true of men when their words 
agree with the words of Christ and the apostles. Now, I want us to see a, a, a couple things in here. And um, so this, Jesus is very clearly in this passage. And we're, you know, I don't want to rush through things and I want to make sure to get through everything. So we're going to just unpack this one passage tonight and just a key element of it. What is the rock on which the church is built? Some of you... Uh, who have friends from a Roman Catholic background or otherwise uh, are well aware that they consider the rock on which the church is built to be Peter. And they think that Peter then somehow passed it on to the next man and passed it on to the next man, and they these days continue to pass it on to the next man, and the man that they refer to with the peculiar name of Pope they, they, they consider that man to now be in the place of Peter, and then when he's done and gone, they'll pass it on to the next person. Um, what, what I want us to begin to see here uh, tonight, and this is a challenge always, you've probably heard this illustration, but it still bears relevance, even though I'm going to give a brief abbreviated version of it. If you, take, if you took us into a room somewhere... Or, or to a circus, and you blindfold us thoroughly so that we cannot see, and then they put in your hands an elephant's tail and say, what is it? You might say a rope, a cord. They, they, the next person they put up, and, and they put him to the, the leg, and they feel the, the breadth of it and, and the roughness of it, they might say a tree. And the next person, you bring them over and you let them feel the ear. And they're thinking, this is, this is some kind of plant, some kind of palm tree, something. Now, again, each of them are feeling a particular part. And they're describing that particular part. But are any of them right? No, it, it, it's, it's not, an, not an elephant. You know, one of the things that, that has sometimes is rarely happened. Uh, growing up, my grandparents used to always watch uh, Wheel of Fortune. You ever heard of that? You spin it, and then it, you uh, choose, buy a vowel, choose a letter. Every once in a while, somebody would say, T. And they'd turn over one T. Uh, I'd like to solve. What? <laughs> You'd like to solve. You've got all of this there. And sometimes they were right. But what I'm urging with regard to the scripture, it's not Wheel of Fortune. So don't try to solve as soon as you can. This one, think of it differently. You don't, it, it, the, the winner is not the person who solves it. It's the one who turns over all the letters one at a time, one at a time with a different goal. And so oftentimes, and you'll find this is the case with, um, with cult groups, that you'll interact with, and people that you're interacting with who interact with cult groups, well, these people came to me, and they're also using the Bible, and they're also showing me verses, and you think, 
Well, we usually say, yeah, but they're wrong. But to, to the individual who shares not your faith or their, uh, the other wrong notions, how can they tell the difference? Well, this person used three verses and this person used two. So I guess the person who used three wins? Not necessarily. And so what I'm, what I'm going to try to help us do is try to understand, one of the things we'll see tonight is just how cautious we need to be in the handling of the Scriptures. So yeah, we're going to look at and, and see the, uh, try to discover the meaning of the term rock. But in the process, hopefully we'll also begin to think how we're handling this is a valuable tool that I need to keep in mind when I'm handling all passages of Scripture. Because the misuse of Scripture is so easy and so dangerous. Let me, listen closely, let me momentarily misuse Scripture for you. Okay, read with me from Matthew 16, verse 20. And I ask you, do you want to claim this verse for your life? I ask you, is this instruction for the modern church? Let me read it for you. What did Jesus say? These are the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It says he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. Do you understand what that verse says? So should we live that out? No. Why? Because there is, a, a, there is an occasion, there is a context, there is a time in which he said those things. While he was still there, prior to his sacrifice, his death and resurrection, they were not to make it known. Subsequently, they were to make it known. Okay. Now, thankfully, I'm sure that none of us have ever been exposed to a single church or a single teacher who has stripped that verse out of context and tried to sell it. Right? Because the moment somebody says, look, if we want to be faithful to the words of Jesus, we've got to make sure to never tell anyone he was the Christ. No one's going to fall for that, right? Yet, when you read that verse, that same way of reading is done a lot, okay? And they'll say, do you understand? This is what Jesus is saying. What did it mean to the people he was speaking to? So if we understand what Jesus was saying, we understand what it meant to the people he was speaking to, then we need to also apply that to our own lives. It's so logical and so reasonable, but so wrong. And thankfully, in this case, everyone can see that would be terrible because we're actually urged to go and proclaim Christ. We're, we're in, in, instructed to, to take the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. Correct? Okay, so hopefully you're starting to see how the ripping of a passage right out of Scripture is dangerous. And I'm going to show you secondarily how proof 
texting and coming to premature conclusions is also very dangerous. It means uh, when I look back on my own journey, there are certain things at times along the way that I was absolutely convinced of and I could prove it to you from the Bible. Now, I say, well, that wasn't the whole truth. The scripture actually says more about that particular issue. And those few verses that I was well aware of did seem to say that, but taking into account the totality of other verses, it gives a clearer meaning than where I was stopping. Okay? So, let's dig into this together. I guess one more thing before we get further, because we can't get too complicated in one evening. But nonetheless, in verse 19, it says this, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And in English, it says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Right? And whatever you bind in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The way that that's translated in English, it sounds like you do it here, and then God will do what you've done first. See, if, if, if it's not translated in the normal sense of the Greek, because nobody ever speaks English in that way. Because if I, if I give this a literal translation in the way that it's written syntactically, it would be this. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be having been bound in heaven. And whatsoever you bind, uh, you loose on earth shall be having been loosed in heaven. Which was saying different. It means the conclusions that you are going to come to in terms of binding and loosing will be starting in heaven and then accomplished through you. Which is different and crucial. Because what we're going to see is the apostles, they don't make the rules and God's up there taking note. No. God is the one who by His Spirit, what He has determined will be the decisive and dynamic terms of the new covenant, which will change a lot of the things of the old covenant. He, by the Spirit, will have them delivered to the apostles, and the, the apostles then will deliver them. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But first of all, I say this is as clearly as possible, even if it doesn't come across supremely sweet, um, with regard to what is the rock that the church is built on. Some myopically. Now, I don't know if you know that word, so let me give you some synonyms for that. I mean, the, it, the idea is uh, not really looking around, not really looking at anything else, just very narrow vision, nearsighted. They myopically. means theirs is as simple as this. Well, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Peter. There you go. He's building it on Peter. That's it. Just You're, you're drawing that conclusion from just who he's talking to. Hmm. 
They say Peter, and this is the Catholic, Roman Catholic notion, and it is utter nonsense. I wanted to make that clear that it's not possibly right. It's absolutely, you know, uh, to use the French term, garbage. That's not a French term, by the way. <laughs> but it's an English term that we mispronounce and get the sense of it. Uh, and I'll show you why from the text. And part of the challenge is this. Oftentimes today, theology is done by people who, and, and no fault of their own, we have to make the best use of the resources we have available to us. No doubt about that. Uh, the biggest confusion on this area came while the church was using Latin versions of the Bible rather than the Greek. If you were simply reading the Greek, which I know none of you are Greek scholars, but it, that's all right. I'm going to show it to you in a way where you'll be able to see and understand it, that it's not a matter of wrangling or twisting. The scriptures are actually really clear. Jesus says to him, you are Petros. And you, I put the Greek word there, and I've, then I've written it in English letters for you. Now, though it may not mean anything to you, Petros is a noun, genitive, masculine, singular. Now, even if that means nothing to you, you're going to see the value of me showing that to you in just a moment. You are Petros. And then he says, and on this, te Petra. Now, which actually is on this, the rock. But we, again, that's bad English, so we throw out the article. On this, te Petra. On this, te Petra, I will build my church. The word where he says on this te Petra, Petra, not Petros. Now, again, what you, what you would be noticing is, if you're looking at it, one would be an Omicron, which is like an O, Petros, or we might say Petros, if that helps you see it better, whereas the other one is an Alpha, Petra. The second one that Jesus says is is a noun that is in the dative feminine singular. So when he says Petros, which is a masculine singular, a genitive masculine singular, and then he says Petra, uh, which is, a, what is it again, a, a dative feminine singular, when he contrasts those back to back, Nobody reading the Greek is ever going to think he's talking about Peter. Because he went from masculine to feminine. And the change from one to the other makes it clear he is speaking of something different. If the intention was for it to be Peter, then the next time when he says, and on this rock, it would have also been in the masculine singular. Again, the change from genitive to dative is not as significant because the genitive means belonging to, uh, holding to. Uh, but this, the, I think, I, hopefully I've written it here. The change of case gender articulates a distinction. 
which basically means this. Peter is not the rock. You know, and some people have gotten into all kinds of things, which is interesting and fun to people. People will say, well, Jesus wasn't uh, even speaking in Greek. He would have been speaking in Aramaic. And in Aramaic it is, and, and they start speculating as to what, well, that's fun and, and enjoy all that stuff. But this New Testament in the Greek is given us in the written word by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I need not speculate about the potential underlying Aramaic. I can hold fast to the clear, revealed, given word of God. Where it, but to go back, some would say, you know, uh, Peter was referred to more as like a pebble or a small piece of a rock, whereas the other is the reference to like a full-on cliffside stone. And there may be some sense in that because Peter is a little bit like that. And, and, I, and I'll show you a few more verses in here. Uh, this um, particular word um, that is uh, the Petra word that is used of the rock on which the church. So again, I, let me finish reading what I wrote there. So don't confuse Greek with English and assume that feminine is talking about a girl rock. Now, I, I don't think any of you were necessarily thinking that rocks come in particular genders. Uh, it's not. Three places this exact word, Petra, is used, and let's look at those verses real quickly. Matthew 27, verse 60 says this, and um, laid it in his own new tomb, that is the body of Christ, which he had cut out in the rock, te Petra. So the rock is what? An entire rock mountain. <laughs> An entire rocky bank in which a, a tomb has been dug out of it. So if, if, you're, if your mind is picturing a boulder, it's, it, it's not carrying the sense of it. So, it's strong language. And, and then it, he rolled a great stone over the entrance. Stone's a different word. It's the uh, Greek word litho. So, it's not even Petra at all. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Speaking of those in the wilderness, all of those who traveled in the wilderness coming out of Egypt, it says they all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that is Petras, that followed them, and the rock, hey, Petra, was Christ. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, just because you see the rock in one place is a clear reference to Christ doesn't mean it's always a reference to Christ, but we've already, what we're ascertaining is this, it is not a reference to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 also, and it's also helpful to hear the words of Peter. I ask you this, for those who, who along the years have decided to, to declare that Peter was the rock and that Peter passed on that primary position in the church to men in each generation, 
If you could ask Peter, who is the rock, what would Peter say? Well, let's have a look-see. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone, that is lithos, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a petra of offense. That's the same word, and don't be uncomfortable because it's a noun, dative, feminine, singular. It's not in any way indicating that Christ was feminine. This is just a different language, and, and certain languages attribute to inanimate objects. Uh, Latin does that. He, uh, Spanish does that, attributes genders even to inanimate objects. So don't get too caught up in that. Jesus was clearly the Son of God. God is always referenced as the Father. Let's not miss those, those distinctive designs that the Scripture lays out for us. But what I am showing you is this. When Peter uses this very same word, that the scriptures refer to as Jesus speaking to him as on this Petra, I will build the church. If you were to interview Peter and say, Peter, who or what is the Petra? Peter's going to say, the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, is what? In that context, it's Christ. He is the living stone to which you come. And we'll see that verse later. Uh, and you can, see, you, you can see that further illustrated in Romans 9.33 and a few other passages in Hebrews, which I typed in and then apparently deleted as well. All right. Secondly, another reason why we know for sure that it is not a reference to Peter one clear, unequivocal fact is because Jesus uses a distinctly different word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew was led by the Spirit to write in such a way that it, the Scriptures make a distinction between Peter and the rock. Okay, so that's clear, yes? Secondly... When Jesus says to Peter that um, you are the rock and on this rock I will build my church, he also says this to him in verse 18, which is why they want to say Peter became the rock and he became the guy because Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. How many of you have ever heard a joke about somebody dies and they go to heaven? And Peter meets them there at the pearly gates and he says to them, have anyone ever heard that? Yes, of course, because the notion is, you know, Peter's the guy. He's got the key. He's going to open it up and let you in or not. Peter's the guy. Well, yeah, no, that's not the way that it is. I mean, it, it might make for some interesting jokes, but don't make jokes the foundation of your theology or your theology becomes a joke. Yeah. Okay. 
the keys to the kingdom. He says this in verse 18, I tell you, um, no, no, verse 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So they, the, a, a segment of people say, uh, he's given them to Peter. Peter gets the keys. Well, what do the keys do? How do these keys work? And you'll see how they work. They what? Whatever you bind on earth shall be having been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be having been loosed in heaven. So the binding and loosing, locking and unlocking, permitting and prohibiting, here is said that it is given to Peter. Now, uh, I think I've indicated in here, yeah, and it's helpful for us to understand this. In point B, it says this, uh, the, the phrases binding and loosing are very, very common rabbinical language. Now, what do I, what's rabbinical language? Rabbis. Everybody was followers of rabbis, and at different times in Jewish history, you had key rabbis. You had your liberal rabbi and your conservative rabbi, and believe it or not, the populace divided and followed different men. You know, that's the way things used to be. Now, in our day and age, everybody just follows one man, and we're all united. Just seeing if anyone's still awake. Oh. Clearly not, uh, but the, the, what the rabbis would say, and, and we know this because they would go in and they would make all kinds of extra rules. Okay, so what we're allowed to do on, on the Sabbath, um, well, what if my mule falls into a pit? I mean, not a question or a problem you normally face on a daily basis, but one they would. Can we get it out or do we have to leave it and try to come back and get it the next day? And so the, the lead rabbis would pass their judgment to the people that, that, that you, are, you are bound to leave it there, or you are loosed to go ahead and, and get him out. So binding and loosing was permitted or prohibited to do something. And when we, when we're, when we move forward into the New Covenant, into the New Testament... The role that God is uh, and that Christ is going to exercise through the apostles is significant. Because remember, coming from the old covenant, you could not eat pork. No, no pork chops, no rigs, ribs, no ham. You know, none of those things you couldn't have. You couldn't have shrimp, lobster. You know, basically the things you eat daily. You, you couldn't have these things, whereas now, uh, what would the apostles, under the authority of Christ, be able to tell the people? Yes, all is clean. All foods are clean. You, you don't have to no longer eat only this and eat only that. You don't have to only observe, uh, to observe this as your special day and, and, and uh, as more special than any other day. They, we're not bound to, to, to those things. So th they were able to loose them from those freedoms. But then also under the authority of Christ, they would bind them even tighter. 
Moses would allow them, if they were displeased for particular reasons, to give a certificate of divorce to their wife. But under Christ, it'd be, no, 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 only in case of adultery. And so they would be, uh, so they'd be loosed with regard to certain eatings and certain days and forced festivals and pilgrimages where males had to be in Jerusalem and certain sacrifices had to be offered with certain frequency, loosed from those things. But then bound to other things, even binding tighter that well, under the old covenant it was, do not commit adultery. Under the new covenant it was, was what? Do not even entertain lustful thoughts. So loosed in, in ways that, that the Jews were never loosed from, and then bound in ways that the Jews would have never anticipated or desired. So this is rabbinical language, and this would be done through the apostolic writings. But listen. It's important for you to note this with me. This is what uh, Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, but look with me in Matthew 18, verse 18. In Matthew 18, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to all of the apostles, okay? And what does he say to all of the apostles? Truly I say to you, that is you in the plural, not singular for Peter. Whatever you bind on earth shall be having been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be having been loosed in heaven. And so basically, the keys to the kingdom, was it exclusively given to Peter? No, it was given to all of the apostles. Now, I will give you this warning. People have, have liked to say, those, whether the keys were passed on from Peter to the next man to the next man, or some have even gone so far as to say the, the apostles have passed those keys on to church leaders. You know, and I can understand the temptation that church leaders would have to accept that kind of interpretation because it means we the boss. What we say goes... And if you disagree, we win. And note this, you got a problem and you leave, we're the ones with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You leave us, you're basically leaving the kingdom. Ah, that's scary, isn't it? No, the keys were given to the apostles. And the commands of Christ would come through the apostles and that would be that when the New Testament is completed, the bindings and loosings, the prohibitions and the permissions are fixed and set, and every subsequent generation does not continue to loose and bind. We continue to declare what has been loosed and what has been bound by the authority of Christ through the apostles in the Word of God. I don't know why nobody's shouting amen. That's fine. I know in your hearts, you're screaming it. Okay. Also, Jesus says this in John 20, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 22 to 23. And when he said this, had said this, now this is again to the 12. Well, it says the 12, but it's the 12 minus Judas. Please note that. Uh, 
he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive any sins, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, that was granting a unique authority to the apostles. Listen closely. No man can forgive your sins today. You don't go to some little booth in the corner of some little room and, and open up a little mesh window, you know, and, and say that you're going to confess your sins and then he'll tell you what to do and or maybe forgive you of your sin or exonerate you of your sin. No man can do that. Or, in this case, which I think would be very interesting to be on the other side of the net. Uh, I did this, and I want to confess my sin. Uh, nah. I want forgiveness not happening. Keep going home and cry for a bit. We'll think about it next week. You know, drop some money in the bin on the way out, by the way. Or whatever it may be, because this was forgive or not forgive. Again, it is a unique apostolic role where actually they will even the apostles will be giving the grounds for which the church will carry out church discipline and the grounds that would lead to excommunication and the grounds for which the church would then be ready to possibly receive someone back in repentance from excommunication the apostles would lay the clear groundwork for that. It's, it's, it's not up to votes. It's not up to feelings. It's not up to opinions. You know, because remember, Jesus even says when he's instructing them, look, if someone comes to you seven times in a single day and says, forgive me, you forgive them. But you and I know by the third time, if not the second, depending who it is, possibly the first, we're already doubting the sincerity. <laughs> you know it, right? I mean, this guy's done it. Ah, I didn't mean to do that. Y you've done it three times in the last hour. I, I doubt your sincerity. I don't forgive you. Well, you don't have the choice to not forgive just because they don't seem sincere because the Scriptures urge you to forgive. Now, you want to pray, oh God, make them sincere. Change their heart truly. I pray that these are not just words of repentance, but it's coming from a heart of repentance, and uh, only you can change them. Uh, at least they're aware of this. They're doing it because they keep asking forgiveness, so they're at least aware it's happening instead of entirely oblivious. Uh, but uh, so what you see there is the, the unique authority to uh, forgive or not forgive, to excommunicate and or receive back, to prohibit and permit. That was extraordinarily unique granted to the apostles, okay? Now, so, so in other words, how is Peter the rock? He's not the rock by language. And he's not the rock by the keys, because he alone wasn't given the keys. They were given effectively to all the apostles. It was mentioned to him alone in Matthew 18, because there was a, a, a conversation going on between Jesus and Peter. But by chapter 18, he applies the very same thing 
binding and loosing to the rest of the apostles and the forgiving and not forgiving to all of the apostles. Okay, so secondly, if the rock is not Peter, some say that the rock is the profession made by Peter. What is the profession that Peter made? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, that, that is what the church will be built on. So everyone who comes forward and says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, they are added to the church. That's what some say, which doesn't sound entirely unreasonable. I'm going to read these quickly because then we're going to get to the scriptures that uh, uh, set these things forward. Okay, so um, they would say that those who make such a declaration demonstrate their faith in Christ and surely express their repentance and faith in baptism are added to the church. So they're added to the church by making the same profession of faith that Peter made. So some make it the profession. Now, maybe you've never heard that before, which is fine. But uh, look, I don't go to an entire list of all the things some say because uh, we'd be here forever and most of them are just insane. But I, I, I'm going to show you ones that have some biblical basis, and we're going to unpack these things. Some say that it is the who of Peter's profession, not just the profession, but the who. And who are they professing? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is Christ that is the foundation that it's built upon. So it, some say it's the profession, some say it's the who of the profession, some say that it's the revelation that brought about the profession, which means, what did Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So how is, how is the, how is, uh, what is the rock on which the church will be built? The power of God in revealing Christ to men. Well, okay, what about page uh, two, number five? Some say that it is uh, the revelation from God that will be given to the apostles and the authority of Christ that they would declare. Okay, so now let's unpack each of these. Some, so, so first of all, which one is it of these five that I've mentioned? Which one is it? The clear answer, not Peter. All right, that's, that's the sure thing. But what about a profession? Is a profession of faith essential to be added to the church? Well, Romans 10 says what? There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, as he writes to the church in Corinth, it says to those who are sanctified in Christ, and then he expands it, called to be saints together with all those in every place that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So some would say the distinctive bedrock of the church is those who are in the church, they call upon the name of the Lord in faith. 
Does that seem true or untrue? <laughs> when I read it, it's like, well, yeah, if, if, you, are, if you don't make that profession, then you're not, you're not saved. So let's, let's go on to the next one. What I'm going to show you is how each of these points that I've made, the some say, some say, each of them, they're scriptures that seem to support them. But we're going to see there's also something that seems to tie them all together as well. Okay. Secondly, some say the foundation is Christ. And they go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 10 and 11. Paul speaks about he, according to the grace given to him, like a master builder, lays a foundation. And somebody else is coming along and teaching and building on it. Let each one take care how he builds it. But look what he says in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Yes? So could it be that Christ himself is the rock on which the church is built? Look at Hebrews 6.1. It says there, let us leave which means move on, move forward, grow, increase from the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. So again, it's talking about the truth as we have it in Christ that brings us to repentance and faith is the foundation that you don't need to keep laying again. Now, it's healthy for us to continue to go back to that, and it's healthy, healthy for us to continue to remember that, but we need to know more than that, and the Scripture's given us much more than that, that we grow deeper and wider. Now, First Peter 2, I mentioned a little while ago, it says this, as you come to Him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but precious or chosen, in God's sight. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. So some say, What? Jesus is the foundation. Christ is the foundation of the church. And again, with, uh, I'll lay this out. When it says the scripture speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone, there's actually two different ideas that are caught up into that. Beautiful ideas. Uh, and even the translators fight or tr over trying to say because there are certain places where the scriptures say uh, cornerstone, which is basically saying the, the chief stone, archistone, and then there's others that speak of it as the cafe, the uh, headstone, okay? So both of these ideas are there, and one of them is in, in ancient construction techniques, they would hone a perfect and big cornerstone, and it would have, it would be the one that is perfectly measured, and once you lay that all the rest of your foundation stones and everything, all you got to do is make sure that it's in line with, with the cornerstone. And if it's in line with the cornerstone, you're good. 
your foundation is going to be solid because everything is lined up right off of that cornerstone. It's kind of like how, how we will, would take a chalk these days and snap it and see that clear line. They'd, be, they'd just line it up, and they'd have their perfect right angle. The other example as, as a capstone is all the different walls are built that often in those days were built into a dome, and that there would be one particular stone that would go on that cap that would keep that would hold everything and keep it from falling in on itself keep it from imploding it would hold all of the pieces together at its head both of those represent pictures of Christ so are you saying that he is that that cornerstone or he is that capstone amen <laughs> on to the next one the divine revelation say that it is uh you know uh, Blessed are you because uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you, that the foundation of the church is God revealing truth. Well, look what it says in John chapter 6. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So there seems to be a certain sense in which... When God, by His power, through the gospel, teaches someone, what do they do? They come to Christ and thus are added to the church. So is some kind of divine teaching revelation by the Spirit through the gospel necessary? We say yes. Even as it says, we, uh, He he who said, let there be light, and he has shown in our hearts to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I think that's probably on the next page, and it is. Uh, but let me read Ephesians. It says this, and that our God and Father, uh, uh, God of our Lord Jesus and the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now listen closely. This revelation is not a unique voice from heaven talking to you or whispering to you, okay? This is, uh, and it's not, it's not a new and different revelation than the scripture. It is through the once for all delivered faith, God taking what was covered to you, and it is now uncovered. That's the meaning of the term revelation. I can't see it. Now I can. And so it's not necessarily a new thing. It's, it's the true thing now uncovered to you by the divine work of God. And listen, we need that not only in the day of our salvation. Paul actually here is writing to the church that they continue to need to uncover more and more and see more and more. He wants them to continue to have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Not new revelation in the, in the crazy sense that takes place somewhere out. What would you say? You know, that kind of stuff. No, no, no. In the sense of here it is, this is what it teaches, and God's people, enabled by the Spirit, continue to say, I see that, I get it, I understand it. I own it. I love it. Okay. Um, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know the hope to which you are called, and so on. 
Now go with me to page three. Paul uses his own example. He says, when uh, he who set me apart before I was born, got to love that. When was Paul set apart? Yeah, but what if he didn't end up becoming willing? Come on. That's ridiculous. He, he, because God is going to make him willing in the day of his power. Well, God doesn't have to work on contingent possible reactions and responses of men. God is going to reveal the Son to him, and in the revelation of the Son, he will know life. Yes? And that's what he says. He set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me. Now listen, he does a similar thing to us. It's not a Damascus road, bright and shiny. It is a spiritual perceive and see the glory of God in the face of Christ through the gospel. And though we have not seen him, we rejoice with a joy inexpressible. That's what Peter says, right? Second Corinthians chapter 4 again says, God said, let light shine of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Goes on to say this, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son also uh, ha has the Father also. Reminds also that many deceivers have gone out into this world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. So, when God gives this revelation... Men confess it. The last of the ones that we look at, what about the foundation being not Christ by himself, but he's going to establish a foundation through, in and through his apostles? Some say that. And some say that because of these verses. So then, Ephesians 2... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. How dare you say that? The foundation's Christ. How dare you? Excuse me. I was reading the Bible. You know, when... You know, at times, it goes a different direction than we were intending for it to go. Wait, don't read me that verse. I've already decided what the foundation is. It is Christ, and that's it. Well, again, who do the apostles speak for? Who do they represent? So when they serve foundationally, is it all that different and distinct from Christ? Especially when Christ is the cornerstone, all the other stones are rightly lined up by Him. All the foundation stones are set according to the cornerstone. So we're okay if all the apostles are also part of the foundation because they're set by the cornerstone. And then we keep reading um, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. All right? So they receive the, again, using this construction language, they receive the precision of their placement and direction from the cornerstone. 
and nothing about the foundation stones waver from the cornerstone. If so, the building collapses. It's not going to hold. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me keep on reading. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5 and following, which was not uh, speaking of the, uh, the things that were not made known to the sons of men and other generations, which is important to note this, as valuable as the Old Testament is, and there is much that we can glean from it. There is much that had not yet been revealed. And so you don't, you, many of men have made mistakes because they draw their final conclusions about certain things spoken in the Old Testament when they finish reading Malachi. No, no, no. Don't stop there. Read the whole of the scripture and then understand the Old Testament in light of its purpose, in light of its fulfillment as unfolding in and through the person of Christ. So, you see this. Um, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, in each of these, I'm putting for you the term apostle prophets with an uh, a hyphen there, speaking of one group of people because it's a Hindiotis. Again, I've spoken of this in the past where it doesn't say the apostles and the prophets. It says the apostles and prophets, like the husbands and fathers. You know, one group, husbands and fathers. You had, you had groups who were prophets, but you'd, you had unique apostle prophets they were those who with their own eyes had seen the risen Lord. They were, as it says in 1 John, uh, they, we saw him, we touched him. We can attest to his glory. We are eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. As Peter says, we heard him say from the holy mount, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I think I may even have that verse there. I probably do. Um, so again, we see the crucial role of the apostle prophets um, uh, by the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who reveals it to them. So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So through the church, the church is ultimately going to be based on what? What is revealed through his holy apostle prophets. That's why I, I, I say this, and it's important, because you maybe never come across them, and that's good, but there, there are a group of people who are called red-letter Christians. You know what red letters are in certain translations, right? Certain printings, the red letters are the words of Jesus. You know, well, I, I, I don't believe that Paul, you know, I'm not into that Paul guy. He seems a little, you know, I don't know. A little hard on women, he seems a little arrogant, he seems, what are you talking about? You're trying to paint a difference between Paul and Peter, or Paul and James, or any of the apostles and Jesus? And the funny thing that they don't understand is the red letters. You're not listening to a recording. Who wrote those down? They were either apostles or they were note takers for the apostles. This is what Jesus said as we were traveling with him. And so if they're saying, we, we don't, we, we're Jesus only. 
You've heard of the Jesus-only movement. Come on. You you can't do that. And and that was not Jesus' design. Um, Again, Romans 16. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages and has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. I love that, and I put their apostolic for you because we understand this. The design was not that it was going to continue through the ages to, to be revealed, revealed, revealed mystically. It was to be written down with apostolic prophecy and then redeclared and God would reveal through what was so extraordinarily revealed to them. Ah. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of Jesus, but we are eyewitnesses of His majesty. And we have, this is the apostles, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. You better just keep listening to us until you get it. You know, until it's uncovered to you, until it's shown forth to you, because this is what it is. We, we don't have a right to disagree with the apostles. Well, I don't see it that way. Well, then you need to keep waiting until you see it because that's how it is. Okay. Because, again, it says this, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Not only the interpretation of men, but the, the sense of this also means, look, this wasn't even our opinions. This wasn't our interpretations of what the Old Testament made. It's, it's not private. It's not personal. This is what God has given to us. This is what it is. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how you see the strong sense of what he's saying there. Uh, Jesus to the apostles of themselves said these unique words. And we're almost done. He said when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you. Them specifically you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears he will speak. And I've told you this before. It's the same kind of thing. Uh, Moses had to do the same thing. The law that God gave to Moses, Moses had to give to the people exactly like that. And the people had to do according to the commandment as God had given. Jesus said, I do not speak of my own authority, but what the Father gives me, I speak. So Jesus is saying with regard to his earthly ministry, only what comes from heaven. The Spirit with regard to his earthly ministry, only what comes from heaven. The apostles, with regard to their earthly ministry, only what comes from heaven. And oh Lord, please, the churches, wouldn't it be wonderful? Only what comes from heaven. 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what we have coming to us from the apostles, if they are foundational, is ultimately coming to us from who? Christ. Who? So do I really have to fight over whether the foundation is Christ or the apostles? Because the foundational role of the apostles is entirely rooted in the person and authority of Christ. Mm -hmm. He will glorify me, and all the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. That's remember the Old Testament. And the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's the New Testament. Make faithful, earnest use of the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews helps you put those pieces together wonderfully. The book of Romans helps you put those pieces together wonderfully. Galatians. Uh, but coming forward, where do we hear the word of Christ? Where do we have the authority of Christ? Where do we have the commands of Christ? How did they get to us? Through the apostles. That's why John can say this in 1 John, we are from God. Remember, that's we who saw him, were eyewitnesses, touched and tasted. We who are from, are, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That's the apostles. That's the, which now I could say that's the apostles. That is the scriptures. That is the New Testament scriptures. If they don't listen to it, if they say, nah, I don't believe that. I don't agree with it. Tell me you don't understand. Tell me you're struggling to reconcile that with some other passage you're thinking of. But please don't ever say that right there, what's written, I don't, I don't accept it. That's Because if you do that, if you don't accept, if you don't listen, then you may be indicating you don't know God. And that's a scary place. It, it's a scary world we live in where, where Christians think they can pick and choose preferential passages and sections and, and, and opinions. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, let me just go back through this. So, which one is the rock? Well, brothers and sisters, I'll say this. The one thing that clearly ties all of the options together is Christ, right? The profession is the profession of Christ. The revelation of God is the revelation of Christ, uh, right, uh, uh, Christ himself being the rock and all that, that the apostles serve and teach comes from and under whose guidance and authority and instruction? Christ. So, but is someone truly, is the church built up by God in his divine revelation through the gospel bringing people to stand on Christ make a profession of Christ, yield themselves entirely to the truth of Christ as given through the apostles. Which one is it? I think I'd, 
I honestly don't know if I can just pick one. Obviously, if I was to pick one, I would say Christ. But all that comes to us through the apostles is of Christ. All that is the heart of what is revealed to us, bringing us to salvation, is the person and work of Christ. And so all of this is gloriously bound up together. So I, I like the fact that it's, that it's a little bit muddled because we take each one of those pieces. Look, if somebody will say it's the Christ, but they have not a profession, is it any good? If they have a profession, but that's just a repetition of what someone's telling them to say, and it's not with a divine revelation of who Christ is, is it really anything? So there's a sense in which I look at all of these and I say, not one of them is expendable to truly be built into the church, to be part of the church that Christ is building. A divine revelation is necessary. A profession is necessary. Christ is necessary. The apostles are necessary. The only, the only thing that's not necessarily necessary is an exclusive person and priority of Peter. It's the only one that doesn't fit. And strangely enough, that's one of the most confusingly commonly accepted understandings. With, with the foundation laid that finds all of it gravitating around the person of Christ, and the authority laid that finds all of it, again, gravitating around the person of Christ, who is the head of the church, we're going to begin to see how that then begins to take place and impact the church practically in terms of what we believe, what we do, who we follow, and how we learn as we move on next week. Let me pray. And thanks for letting me take a little extra time. Lord, as we... Um, conclude today's session, I just, I'm thankful for your word, and when we compare scripture with scripture, this passage is so meaty, and many of the conclusions people draw, it's by uh, seeing a part of what the scripture says, and then seeing how other parts of your word unpack it, but when we really unpack this whole passage, there's just so much richness that revolves around the grace of God in the person and work of Christ and in the establishment of church and in the roles that were given and to the apostles under Christ's unique divine authority and revelation. So God, we're thankful for this in, in, in the somewhat complex, if not confusing elements of these, we have this confidence. Christ will build his church, and it will be built on what is stable, what is divine, what is clear, and what is unchangeable. And we thank you for the grace that is ours. We thank you for the confidence that we have, and that no matter what happens in this world, the gates of Hades, uh, the work of the enemy, nothing will prevail against the church of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.